0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome to CNN. I'm Rahel Solomon. And we continue to follow two major stories this hour. The death toll topping 17,000 in Turkey and Syria, After this week's massive earthquake, growing fears that time is running out to find survivors. The suffering only getting worse for the scores of people without shelter or supplies in both nations, with officials now warning of a deadly secondary disaster. All of this as Turkey's president defends his country's quake response. Our other top story, Volodymyr Zelensky in Brussels for a historic EU meeting. Ukrainian president urging Europe to send new arms, including fighter jets, and saying that his country deserves quick EU membership. We are live in Brussels just ahead. But first, the bitter cold further endangering survivors and also complicating rescue efforts as rescuers race against the clock to try to clear the rubble from collapsed buildings like this. Survivors waiting for any signs of good news. Jumana Koreche reports from the southern Turkish city of Adana. (laughs)
2: A five-year-old emerges from underneath the rubble in Turkey's hard-hit Hatay, one of the youngest of thousands of lives saved. But for too many, it was too late. In the town of Kirkhan, they mourn one of the many who have not made it out alive. With the death toll rising by the hour, this is a race against time. How many are buried under the wreckage of this massive quake zone, no one really knows. Estimates in the tens of thousands. Here in Adana, search and rescue crews work tirelessly around the clock, digging through what used to be a 14-story residential building, where families lay asleep when the monstrous earthquake hit. Survivors have gathered at the site of the rescue mission, there's shelter and hot meals. And in the bitter cold, they huddle around these fires, everyone with a story of the horror they've survived. The shock, the trauma, the pain visible on every face. Parents doing what they can to try and make their little ones forget. Many here are anxiously awaiting news of their loved ones and friends, buried under what's left of their homes. Get down! They're asking us to get down and we believe this is because they're scanning the building, the wreckage. This is a very, very careful and delicate operation that's going on to try and see if they can locate any survivors because so far they haven't been able to. No survivors yet, only lifeless bodies pulled. It's been three days, why can't they get my son out, this father wails. As night falls, the rest of the family wait desperately for any news of 25-year-old Sert. They've been out here for three long nights.
3: It's so, so, so bad uh, because uh, all these nights uh, we are thinking my family my uh, thinks. Uh, uh, um, my cousin's her my cousin's dad he's crying so much he's crying so much he he's uh, wonder her his son your cousin's dad mm, we yeah, saw him
2: earlier yeah. he was he was crying he yes, was crying yes we are
3: yeah, all is crying cry. that that's why I don't know how to say all is we should we should pray to god
2: and that is all they and countless others can do right now
1: and moments ago Jumana also spoke to another turkish resident about what they're facing listen
2: we're in the city of iskandarun that is part of Hatay province one of the hardest hit provinces by this earthquake and as we are driving into the city you can see extensive damage all over the city center and right here we're told this was an 11-story uh, building um, and it was a newly built uh, structure. There were only a few people who were inside at the time and we have uh, server here who is with us. He's been out here waiting for news about your friend.
3: Yeah, my relative. He, was, he is my partner in work. We've been waiting here for four days now. And it's really hard to get him. Today, I think we are going to get a, uh, get news about him, hear news about him.
2: And, and you've been out here for the past Yeah, four days, for this, yeah. And, and I mean, have you seen any survivors coming out?
3: First day, three people got out alive. The second day, three people got out dead. The third day, two people. And now there's only one person left. So we are waiting to hear news about him. As you see, this is a two-year-old building, and as the one of the survivors say, as the hurt earthquake began, the building just destroyed. Didn't even wait for any seconds. As it started, it just vanished. Yeah.
2: And how are you feeling? I mean, not knowing what happened to your
3: friends. Uh, I'm, I'm confused. I don't know how to feel senseless yeah i mean
2: this must be really really
3: hard yeah it is knowing, it is right? hard it is hard not for me it's hard for the city there's m- many people without a home without electricity without water it's really hard for the people yeah.
4: and do you have
5: hope that they're going to First day
3: i was really hopeful because this building looks just fine but this is the fourth day i'm I'm getting out of hope. Well,
1: that was reporting there. And a massive effort is underway to get critical aid to survivors. Turkey's foreign minister said Thursday that the country has received offers of assistance from 95 countries and 16 international organizations. Salma Abdelaziz joins me now from Istanbul. And Salma, as I understand it, you spent some time at a distribution center, at an aid distribution center. What more can you tell us about the status of aid?
4: Look, there's absolutely such an enormous, such a tremendous need on the ground that no matter how much help pours in, it's never going to be enough. I mean, you think about these numbers, you think about these figures that we're discussing, they're absolutely staggering. Tens of thousands of people wounded, over 16,000 people killed, countless people now, of course, made homeless. It's really, really difficult to comprehend the scope and scale, especially when you're looking at entering now the fourth day of this crisis and that hope that we saw previously, that we might find people alive under the rubble, that's slowly fading. And what's coming into its place is anger and grief. You heard that there from our colleague, Jamana Karachi in her piece, the stories of people on the ground who are wondering why their government wasn't there. And I just wanna break down for you a little bit this frustration that is not just felt in the earthquake zone, it's really felt across Turkey. First of all, it's about the response. There's questions being asked as to whether or not the Turkish government acted quickly enough. We saw in more remote areas in that southern region that help seemed to take forever for those families to come, that some of them could hear their loved ones under the rubble, but didn't have any assistance or rescue workers or equipment to be able to actually pull them out. And that we also know that many families spent several days without food, water, or any assistance in that freezing cold. But again, the scope and scale and magnitude of an earthquake, one of the strongest seen in this region in a century, it's possible to argue that no government could have fully prepared even one like Turkey, which has expected earthquakes sitting on a major fault line. But the second question, and you also kind of saw that there, in uh, our colleague Jomana's piece again, from from that eyewitness on the ground, is the question about building codes. Why were buildings not stable enough to withstand this? And the reason this is being asked is because Turkey had a very particular system. After the earthquake in 1999, building codes were updated. There were supposed to be more earthquake resistant rules when it comes to building uh, these huge apartment blocks that you're seeing. But at the same time, we are looking on the ground and we are seeing these buildings that were built uh, in recent years, you heard that again in the story, that have been pancaked, completely collapsed. That is raising questions. Were the codes met? Could lives have been saved? President Erdogan, of course, was chased with these questions, essentially, when he visited the region. And I will point out one last thing that might just point out that the Turkish government is aware of this frustration and trying to clamp down on it. Access to Twitter yesterday, as President Erdogan was touring that area, access to Twitter was limited. Signs there that they're trying to silence the concerns. But these families, they're going to keep demanding answers.
1: And I think, look, it'll be an interesting question when this is all said and done, how many of these buildings that fell were new construction to your point, and how many of them were old construction? Because if they were new construction, then questions certainly remain about were they up to code and should they have been? Salma Abdelaziz, we will leave it here. Thank you. I do want to point your attention for our viewers around the world to those live pictures that you were just looking at. Those were rescue efforts in the city of Gaziantep. here, as we see uh, people continuing with their hands, trying as this crisis now stretches into the fourth day trying to see if they can find any survivors trying to recover any bodies we know that as this crisis continues to stretch on the likelihood of finding people alive is growing more and more dim but the search and the hope as we heard from that turkish resident remains to our other top story this morning ukrainian president volodymyr Zelensky in brussels meeting with leaders of the european union Earlier today, he delivered an emotional address to the European Parliament.
6: This is our Europe. These are our rules. This is our way of life. And for Ukraine, it's a way home.
1: Now, this comes a day after Mr. Zelensky met with the British Prime Minister in London and the leaders of France and Germany, which we're viewing here in Paris. Nick Robertson is live in Brussels with the latest. Nick, you know, there is the longer term goal, of course, of EU membership, but there is the more immediate need of fighter jets. From your perspective, what appear to be the the larger priority here for Zelensky?
6: Um, The fighter jets and the longer range missiles. There was a question from the audience in the press conference a few minutes ago, uh, and he said, look, I can't go back empty-handed. I can't afford not to push this debate and this issue forward. He said he did think that it got some support from the UK on longer-range missiles. And he also said very cryptically, and of course, we know that this happens. There are conversations that happen in private and and the outcome is not made public. But he said essentially, rest assured what uh, the assurances that I'm getting uh, in these conversations that, I, that I'm not going to report about, that I'm not going to talk about, he said, um, are positive. So it is his priority. And I think part of that is, and this is something that seems to be shared by the leaders here, that the coming weeks and months are, are really important. There's a real urgency and the future of the war and what happens to Ukraine can really be pivotal in the, in the in the very very near future and I think that's shared and understood um, but of course He did get the congratulations from the uh, European Council president about how much uh, Ukraine has done despite the war to actually move towards uh, readying itself, uh, crossing some of the hurdles in terms of judiciary, in terms of media reforms, other reforms to be able to join the European Union in the future. And to that, he said, to a question asked in that press conference, uh, when was he hoping it would happen? Well, this year. This year, he said, turning um, to uh, Charles Michel and Ursula von der Leyen and standing side by side with him, and I think that's another thing about Zelensky's visit here. Um, he's had more time in sort of more public forums uh, with with a number of leaders. Uh, with with and um, uh, his meeting very shortly with the, with one on one with the Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Meloni. But he also Roberta uh, Sartori, the um, sorry the, the the European Parliament President. He had time with her. We've seen a side of Zelensky, um, perhaps a little bit more relaxed. Uh, we've seen his humor. And we've seen how he connects with these leaders. And that's another narrative that's emerged over the past 24, 36 hours, is how much um, this one man, this president of Ukraine, can influence these other politicians to do what they would otherwise not want to do, which gets to your point, uh, the fighter jets, Uh, and the longer range missiles. And he does seem to be having some progress.
1: And Nick, to that point, in terms of how persuasive he is managing to be, he also talked about, uh, in terms of the emotional, more moments of the speech, he also talked about how Ukraine shares European values and Russia does not.
6: Yes. And that was really, when he began that speech, actually, he seemed quite emotional because there was such a round of applause. And this was where He was, I think, one of those moments where he was trying to connect through these 705 European members of parliament there, connect to the people that voted for them, connect to the people of Europe. Thanking them for their support for the refugees, thanking them for coming out uh, in, in their squares in support in their village squares, town squares in support of ukraine um, and I think that that way of connecting, saying, "We are you, we, we share your values we don 't share the things uh, that russia uh, that Russia wants the the shutting down of the press, the, the the curtailing of human rights, all of those things. He said we share Ukraine's values, and this is this is a substantial and important message to make sure that Ukraine can continue to have the support that it's getting at the moment from the ground up, not just from leaders, but from the population writ large, because they're the ones that. That give the political space for these politicians to make the big financial uh, and diplomatic commitments that keep Ukraine um, alive and sustained in the fight. And as, as everyone here has said, ultimately to win that fight with Russia.
1: To win that fight and to win the public support, as you point out. Nick Robertson, thank you. And for more on this, Bruno Lette joins me. He is a senior fellow at the Think Tank German Marshall Fund. Bruno, good to have you on the program today. Thank you. So we just just heard Nick there say that Zelensky essentially said, I cannot go home empty-handed. Will he? Is he?
7: Well, you know, for Europe, this is, of course, a highly symbolic uh, visit. But for Ukraine, there really are real stakes uh, at the table. Um, Really, there are three things uh, that Zelensky wants to bring home. First of all, it's weapons, more weapons and faster deliveries. Uh, you know, UK- Ukraine actually think that Europe could, de- could do a better job uh, in this regard. So weapons. Two, it's about sanctions. Uh, the European Union is now negotiating a tenth package of sanctions against Russia to be agreed uh, normally around the 24th of February. So the president of Ukraine really wants to make sure that those sanctions move forward. Uh, and number three, of course, is the whole issue around Ukraine's EU ambition. Um, there is still, it's still unclear whether Ukraine will have an accelerated uh, membership process or not. Of course, Ukrainians hope they do, but those are really the three um, issues where Mr. Zelensky needed some deliverables and also some good news.
1: And, And to that point, I mean, as you point out, it is no secret that Zelensky and Ukraine would like a more accelerated process in order to join the EU. But what do you think is a more realistic timeline in terms of how quickly they can get these reforms instituted?
7: Well, we see there's still some disagreement inside the EU what to do with this. Um, The European Commission itself is, is a big fan of moving this process fast forward. But we see there are some capitals that are more hesitant uh, and that actually already argue that this process will take a long time. I mean, you know, bringing in Ukraine, um, it's a big country, 40 million people. So if Ukraine becomes a member of the EU, there will be some structural changes happening inside the European Union. And this, of course, is a concern to certain capitals. So it is still unclear now what will be the outcome. The European Commission wants to go fast. Some EU member states already put the foot on the brake.
1: Bruno, as you point out, it's a big country, but it is still a new country. It is still a relatively new democracy. So in what areas does Ukraine still need to do the most work in terms of supporting and advocating for itself to join the EU and proving that it is it is uh, the right candidate to join the EU?
7: Well, you know, I think we have to be fair here. We need to admit that Ukraine has done a tremendous job in transforming itself. The Ukraine that we know today is no longer the Ukraine of five or six years ago. There have been reforms going on. Uh, The corruption is being tackled. Um, So many laws are being passed. So we see that from a, a technical perspective. Ukraine is actually moving fast forward, and the European Commission has also recognized that. The European Commission has written a report actually applauding uh, Ukraine's performance uh, vis-à-vis becoming a more EU-fitted country. But of course, becoming a new member is also a political decision. It's not only about technical indicators. And yeah, the political decision ultimately will define whether or not Ukraine will become a member. That, of course, is still unclear. Uh, there's no political agreement yet among all the EU member states.
1: Hmm. The visit, no, nonetheless, still symbolic and, and practical in, in nature, nonetheless. Bruno Lette, we'll leave it here, thank you. He's a senior fellow at the German thank Marshall you. Fund. And straight ahead, what did the US know about China's spy balloon and when did it know it? We have new reporting after this. Military sources tell CNN that U.S. officials knew ahead of time that a Chinese balloon was about to enter U.S. airspace. A day beforehand, the Defense Department sent out an internal report known as a tipper through classified channels. But at the time, it wasn't flagged as urgent. Now it's become a political flashpoint with some Republicans who are criticizing the Biden administration. Meantime, U.S. intelligence insisting that China did intend to use the balloon for spying. Take a listen to this from the Pentagon.
8: I can assure you this was not for civilian purposes, that that is, we are 100% clear about that. Based on what we know and have observed about this balloon, it is a surveillance balloon. It was an intelligence collection capability. Um, You know, a question I would ask myself is, if in fact it was a civilian balloon, a weather balloon, and it was approaching a sovereign nation about to enter their airspace. A responsible nation would have put out some kind of public statement saying, hey, heads up, this is heading your way. We just want to let you know. The PRC did not do that. They didn't respond until after they were called out. I'll just leave it at that.
1: All right, let's get the latest now with our Natasha Bertrand, who has new details from Washington. Natasha, what more are you learning about the timeline of all of this and how this all unfolded?
9: Yeah, Rahel. So we're learning that on January 27th, about one day before the balloon actually entered U.S. airspace over Alaska, the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the intelligence arm of the Pentagon, sent out a classified report, a short report, basically flagging that a foreign object was headed towards U.S. airspace. Now, these kinds of reports are available to anyone who wants to read them, but it was not flagged to the highest levels of the U.S. government because it was not deemed as an urgent threat. The U.S. had seen these kinds of balloons before, and But previously, they had not posed any kind of military or national security risk to the United States. So U.S. officials believed that the best course of action, even after receiving this DIA report, would simply be to monitor the balloon as it crossed over Canada and potentially left American airspace. But that is not what happened. Instead, the balloon actually took a sharp downward turn south, from Alaska over Canada and into Montana. And that is when U.S. officials started getting very concerned because that is a path that balloons like this have not actually taken before. So at that point, we are told that the U.S. actually sent jets up to do a positive identification of this balloon, see what they could learn about it. And at that point, they believed that it was headed towards Montana and that it could potentially be gathering intelligence about sensitive military installations there. So around January 31st, a couple days later, that is when President Biden was officially briefed on this, and of course the U.S. still felt at that point like it would not be beneficial to shoot it down right away because shooting it down over water, as we have been told, would pose the, a lesser risk to civilians on the ground. And also, importantly, it would allow the United States to better collect intelligence about the balloon uh, over the course of the several days that it transited over the continental U.S. So this shifts the timeline back by about a day. But U.S. officials tell us look, we still did not view this as urgent enough to take kinetic action against it. We wanted to see what more we could learn about it. But that, of course, the calculation started to change once it actually hit the continental United States and appeared to be behaving uh, a little differently than what they had. Seen seen before, Rahel.
1: Natasha Bertrand, thank you, joining us there from Washington. And China is pushing back against assessments like that. The Chinese foreign ministry denying U.S. allegations that this spy balloon was part of a fleet around the world and also accusing the U.S. of being the world's, quote, largest surveillance and reconnaissance country. Our Selena Wang has the details from Beijing.
10: Beijing is hitting back at Washington's statements about the suspected spy balloon. The Pentagon said on Tuesday that China refused a conversation with U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin following the downing of the balloon. Well, now China's defense ministry is saying they rejected that call because the conditions were not right, given the U.S.'s, quote, irresponsible and seriously wrong approach. We've seen Beijing's rhetoric harden significantly after the U.S. military shot down the balloon. After initially expressing regret for what they claim is a weather balloon that flew off course, Beijing is now accusing the U.S. of overreacting and violating international practice. The contrast between what Beijing and Washington are claiming is only getting starker. You have China on one hand, doubling down on its claim. This was a civilian balloon that took an unplanned course that was out of their control. On the other hand, the Pentagon has said it has 100 percent certainty that the downed Chinese balloon was not being used for civilian purposes. CNN has reported that U.S. intelligence officials believe the balloon is part of an extensive military-run surveillance program that involves a fleet of balloons spanning five continents. China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said that claim is, quote, likely part of the U.S.'s information and public opinion warfare and accused the U.S. of being the world's largest surveillance reconnaissance country. The Pentagon has said that maintaining open lines of communication with China are particularly important in moments like this. The question still remains as to whether this balloon incident will lead to long-term damage to the relationship between the U.S. and China that is already extremely tense. Selena Wang CNN, Beijing.
1: And coming up, the desperate task of getting food and supplies to quake survivors. The job especially difficult in war-torn Syria. We will hear from a U.N. refugee official coming up next. Welcome back to CNN. We return to Turkey and Syria and some good news. We are just getting in 78 hours after the devastating earthquake. A mother and her two boys have been rescued alive near the quake's epicenter. Rescue workers heard a voice and worked all night to free the family. But these are the lucky ones. The death toll now has soared past 17,000 people. The race against time only intensifying temperatures in the disaster zone, staying below zero at night before warming to about 5 degrees Celsius during the day, and it's expected to stay that way for the next several days. The World Health Organization is now warning of a secondary disaster if humanitarian aid is not sped up. And with each passing day, rescue workers are pulling fewer survivors and more victims from the debris. As the days drag on, frustrations also grow over the state's response to the deadly disaster. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh has the story.
11: To see the devastation in a city of this size is just utterly remarkable. Some streets, one building fine, it seems untouched, standing, the next utterly flattened. Uh, And some streets indeed with the bottom three floors of an apartment block crushed on each other and the rest of the building standing upright. It was indeed in one of those where we saw a glimmer of hope, rescue workers running towards and you can see them running behind me here as well, running towards the scene where they thought they had found an 18 year old girl alive. Sadly, in front of her mother, she was brought out and seemed to have perished in there. But down here at this wreckage, continued bids to respond to the noises they hear, to respond to what they hope will be people being brought out alive. And anger too, that we hear from bystanders looking in one case at the now destroyed home of their sister and her entire child family. Anger at the construction, how some buildings are upright through building regulations being followed and some are crumbled down to rubble. And a culture really of where construction is so part of the money here, so some accused that are being riddled with corruption uh, and how that made them angry too, uh, the government culture that would permit that to occur. But still now, the urgent task responding to the noise that they hear inside the rubble, calls for silence, a pause in work, and then sadly, as we've seen over here, some bodies that have been brought out. It is a grim and constant job that we are hearing uh, and seeing from the rescue workers here. And in no case over there, some of those bodies marked with with owner, suggesting that they have been identified, that somebody may be there to collect them soon, and others left with those questions still unanswered. Nick Payton-Walsh, CNN, Antakya, Turkey.
1: And the group The White Helmets, are leading rescue operations in rebel-held areas of northern Syria. Their heroism has been well-documented during nearly 12 years of civil war. More now from CNN's Salma Abdelaziz.
4: This is no way to come into the world. Birthed during an earthquake, thrust into a war zone, orphaned, and alone. This newborn girl was found alive, her umbilical cord still attached to her dead mother's body, buried under the rubble of their home. This video shows the moments after rescue workers pulled her out of the ruins. We found the parents' bodies lying next to each other. Then we heard a faint sound. He says, we dug, we cleared the dust and found the baby, still tied by her umbilical cord. So we cut it off and sent her to hospital. The rest of baby John Doe's immediate family lies in the back of this pickup truck, all dead, before they even knew she was alive. An entire generation of Syrians has been born into war. Now those traumatized children face yet another catastrophe. Diplomatic efforts are underway to open a humanitarian corridor. But already there are concerns access is being politicized. The Damascus government, heavily sanctioned by the West, insists it should be the sole coordinator.
7: So if it's happened to your country or to his country, it will be the same. Without the control of the government, without permission of the government, without approval from the government, this is violation. Very simple.
4: But few in rebel-held areas, places bombarded for years by President Bashar al-Assad, believe the government that once leveled their neighborhoods would care to save them now. And the clock is ticking to find any survivors under hundreds of collapsed buildings. Like Maryam, this social media video shows her more than 36 hours after the quake, soothing her little brother, Ilaf. Please, she says to the rescue workers, please help us. I'll do anything if you could just help us. Siblings are eventually extracted and brought safely to their terrified parents. In another rare moment of triumph, an entire family is retrieved by emergency responders. Just watch the crowd's reaction as they bring them out, one by one. Dad. Daughter. Son. In Syria, just surviving is a victory. Salma Abdulaziz, CNN. Istanbul.
1: And let's get more now on these rescue efforts. Joining me now is Rula Amin. She is the spokesperson for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. The agency is coordinating the emergency response to the earthquake. Uh, Rula, good to have you on the program today. I wish under better circumstances. Look, we know this earthquake hit both sides of the border, but it doesn't appear that aid is equally getting to both sides of the border. What more can you tell us about the status of aid?
12: Yes, um, of course. You know, first it's OCHA who is coordinating all the response. UNHCR is is part of this response, and what's happening is that, as you know, Syria has been in a crisis for twelve years, and the situation on the ground is very complicated. So aid is not coming in um, as as we wish, as needed, and as fast as possible. That's why our urge is: we need access and we need resources because the needs that have emerged as a result of this earthquake. You know, of this earthquake, are just immense. People are desperate for rescue, to for someone to take them out uh, from under the rubble. They are desperate for shelters. They need food. They need medicine. They need blankets. They need mattresses. And even on the long run, this will have a lot of consequences on people's lives. That's why we say we need to put politics aside and we need all efforts to be focused on bringing relief to these people as soon as possible and as much as possible.
1: What's the, the bigger concern right now in getting aid into Syria? Is it the access or is it the resources?
12: It's both. For now, most of the UN organizations are using their pre-positioned stocks. So every organization like UNHCR, we have like 20,000 tents inside Syria and we have uh, hundreds and thousands of items also inside, inside Northwest Syria. And we are using this to distribute to those who need it. But there are so much needs. The needs are increasing by the day. And that's why we need to bring in more relief items, more tents, more blankets. And that's why we need more resources. We're not waiting, but we need these resources. At the same time, you know, one issue is that even the aftermath of the earthquake, there is a number of buildings that collapsed. But many of these people who had been hit by this earthquake had been displaced from their homes for years. They have been living in tents flimsy shelters, partially destroyed buildings, and it's all weak structures. So even if it had not collapsed, the earthquake had weakened it and it became unsafe to stay in. So the number of people who had to flee and cannot go back to their homes is huge. And that's why the shelter need, the need to help them either with tents, plastic sheeting, there are shelters being opened like school, using schools, mosques, but these are temporary solutions. So so we will need a lot of resources to help these people restart again.
1: Rula, we got some news this morning that for the first time a U.N. aid convoy has crossed into the border, into Syria, uh, for the first time for that region. Can you tell us a bit more about how large the aid was and what exactly it entails?
12: Um, Yes, of course. It's a bit complicated, the setup there, on how aid comes in. But basically in northwest Syria, which is under the control of the opposition forces, Uh, The United Nations Security Council has authorized the United Nations humanitarian agencies like UNHCR to bring in aid through this border crossing from Turkey into northwest Syria. And this has been happening for years. More than 4 million people are dependent on this aid to survive because 3 million of them almost are displaced anyway. And so their needs are huge. And that's why throughout the years we have been sending in relief items, food, supplies, everything through. And it's been distributed on the ground by local NGOs, mostly Syrians, who know, and they have a huge network to distribute. Now, when the earthquake happened, not only it, it destroyed people's homes and lives, it also destroyed the infrastructure, including a main road that led into northwestern Syria. And it took two days to fix this road for aid to start going back in. Now, as I said, it's not like in the past two days there was no aid being delivered because we had we all had stocks of items inside and our partners on the ground were using it to reach a lot of people. But it's not enough and we need so much more. Even if we get trucks in for the next 10 days, it is not enough. The needs are huge because people anyway were in need of this aid. They need so much to survive. They need so much to protect their families. And we have to remember for 12 years, this crisis has been going on and people had started to feel that the world has forgotten about them. It's 12 years of crisis, of war, of economic, deep economic uh, def- inflation, it's, it's COVID. So they had been feeling alone. And now with this happening, they are really hopeless. And it's time for the world to stand by them, to renew its commitment, to support them, that we will not forget about them. And maybe, hopefully, There will be some kind of a resolve that their suffering has to end. It's enough. 12 years where the civilian population has paid the highest price for the Syria crisis, and now they're hit by this strong earthquake, shattering their lives even further.
1: Just compounding challenges, compounding problems, as you lay out really well there. Uh, I I was encouraged to hear you say that that road, that main road, has improved enough that that aid is actually starting to get in. I do want to ask, however, what do you think the biggest challenge moving forward now is? Is it uh, the Syrian government perhaps being suspicious of outsiders coming into Syria? Is it the rebel-held territories? I mean, what is the bigger challenge? I know they are both challenges, but what's the bigger challenge moving forward?
12: I think we have so many challenges. You know, it's 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 a very highly politicized situation. Um People at, and the public is very charged. People are seeing these images of people stranded under the rubble and people trying to extract them, whether in Northwest Syria or inside Syria, with their own hands, with shovels. And people are frustrated. So there's some, a lot of blame game. People want to see more being done to help these people. They want to see equipment, real equipment, serious equipment being brought in, brought in, whether inside Syria where the government controls or in inside Northwest Syria, where the opposition controls the ground. So all these things are real needs, and it's real families who are stranded there, desperate for the world to come in and help, regardless of any agenda, regardless of any political issues. Resources is also very important, because for humanitarian agencies to reach all these people, not only with a mattress and a tent today, but for sustained humanitarian assistance, it's going to take a lot of resources, and we need the international community to, to commit to that. You know, Even before this earthquake hit across Syria, more than 70% of the population was dependent on this humanitarian aid to survive its day, to be able to put food on the table, to be able to send its kids to school. The hospitals, only half of the hospitals in Syria were functioning due to the 12 years of crisis. So the, the needs were immense, and now they have been exacerbated.
1: Hmm. Well well said. I mean, I I think the resources can certainly be rounded up. I think moving forward, it would be encouraging if the access would also be there, too, to actually get the the resources to where they're needed. Rula, I mean, we'll have to leave it here, but thank you for being on the program today.
12: Thank
0: you.
1: She is the senior communications advisor for UNHCR. And coming up, Kim Jong-un showcasing North Korea's new missile power, as he also shares the spotlight with his young daughter. We have a live report from Seoul coming up next. Welcome back to North Korea Now, where the nation is showing off a record number of advanced intercontinental ballistic missiles and a nighttime military parade. The massive event marking the 75th anniversary of the founding of the country's army. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un also putting the spotlight on one of his children. Paula Hancock is live in Seoul with the details. Paula, this is what, maybe the fifth time, a handful of times we've seen her since November. It's really sparking speculation that maybe she could be next in line.
5: Well, every time we see her, Rahel, that's uh, certainly fueling the speculation even more that potentially she is being groomed for an important position perhaps the top job uh, but of course no one knows for sure until North Korea tells us themselves but what we saw with this uh, this military parade on Wednesday night was a couple of new things first of all we've never seen a North Korean leader take a child to the military parade before but we did see Kim Jong-un taking his daughter and she was uh, filmed and front and center watching the missiles roll by it was also A first for the sheer amount of ICBMs that we saw uh, at this military parade, a significant amount of North Korea's most powerful weapon. Missile after missile rolls through Pyongyang's main square Wednesday night, its biggest intercontinental ballistic missile, the Hwasong-17, presumed capable of reaching mainland United States. No speech from leader Kim Jong-un this time, but this many ICBMs are a message in themselves.
3: They've now
7: gone into a good production line of this very capable, threatening missile system.
5: And what some experts say may be a mock-up of a new solid-fuel ICBM which would make it quicker to launch and easier to move.
7: If this is the case, it gives them more mobility, flexibility, lethality, and so forth.
5: Kim Jong-un told the world he wanted a bigger and better nuclear arsenal. And judging from these images provided by state-run media, that seems to be exactly what he's doing. Another first, the military parade, was a family affair. Kim's wife and daughter were watching the missiles roll by. Believed to be called Jue, maybe nine or ten years old, this is the fifth public event for Kim's daughter since November, the only one of his children to be shown in public. fueling speculation he may be grooming her for
0: succession. In order to seize power in North Korea, gaining control of the military and their loyalty is the most important thing. So I think that's why Kim Joo-ae is mainly accompanying Kim to military-related occasions.
5: Kim Jong-un's message has been, we will strengthen the military and we will be ready for war. And staying with the military theme, Ri Sol-ju, Kim Jong-un's wife, was also seen at a banquet in state media which aired on Wednesday wearing a necklace with an ICBM pendant, which has uh, garnered a fair bit of attention over here. So a fashion nod to the country's most powerful weapon. And looking at the daughter once again, when it comes to how she is being referred to in state media, that is being closely watched as well for any indication of uh, of how she should be treated. And the sorts of words that are used in state media is beloved and also respected. Uh, one expert who watches the family closely that we spoke to said that could suggest that already there is a, a sense of, uh, of adoration and idolation uh, around her already, as there is with the rest of the Kim family. Rahel: mm.
1: Fascinating. It'll be interesting to see, Paula, if we see more sights of his daughter, as you pointed out in your piece. We've already seen her a handful of times in just the last few months. Paula Hancocks, thank you. Well, coming up, Disney's dilemma. Its streaming business is slowing and big job cuts are coming. The very latest after the break. Welcome back. U.S. stocks up and running on Wall Street. Stocks bouncing after across-the-board losses on Wednesday, but you can see a different picture today. The Dow, Nasdaq, and S&P all higher. We saw some losses yesterday on fresh interest rate uncertainty, though. Recent comments by Fed officials suggest that They could keep raising borrowing costs past what the street is pricing in. Bob Iger is out with a bold new plan to try to right the ship at Disney. The CEO of the entertainment giant, targeting more than $5 billion in cost savings, including 7,000 job cuts. All of this as the Disney Plus streaming platform suffers its first ever drop in subscriptions. But take a look at shares. They're rallying on this restructuring news up about four and a half percent, as well as word that Disney could begin paying dividends again. One of the big questions, though, is will all of this please activist investors? Paul and Monica joins me now. Paul, you know, either comes back to Disney at a time when they really have their hands full. They have a slew of challenges ahead of them.
8: There are definitely many challenges, Rahal. You mentioned that there is a bit of a streaming slowdown, maybe an oversaturation in that part of the media business with all the competition, Netflix, our parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery, obviously, with HBO Max and Discovery Plus, Paramount. There is a lot of competition and Iger recognizes that they need to streamline and cut costs, which unfortunately means those 7,000 layoffs What's very interesting is that the news is just breaking. Nelson Peltz was on CNBC and he is that activist shareholder you mentioned. Before his appearance, he you know, uh, Tryon, his firm, sent a comment to CNN saying that they were pleased with Disney's news yesterday, but stopped short of saying that anything new was gonna happen. But Peltz just went on CNBC and said, the proxy fight is over. He apparently is no longer seeking a board seat or major changes to shake up Disney, he seems pleased with what Bob Iger has announced.
1: Oh, well, that's something that will also make the stock jump because you had Dan Loeb saying that essentially that he is pleased, and now you have Nelson Pelt saying that he is pleased, so that's some good... You can call that a win, I think, for Bob Iger.
8: It, yeah, I mean, there's there's the sad fact that Iger may never get to retire because Wall Street right. loves him so much, and He's if almost, they tried yeah, this job, again, Paul we saw Monica. what happened, unfortunately, with Bob JPEC. I mean, Iger yeah. tried to seamlessly lead past the baton to another Disney Insider and it didn't work. So when is Iger ever going to leave? He said two years. Not sure Wall Street believes that.
1: We'll see. Lots to watch. Paula Monica, thank you. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World is coming up next.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness